0: It's Left of Field with Danny Kavanagh.
1: Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Episode 6 of Left of Field. I'm Danny Kavanagh, and today I was lucky enough to sit down with media superstar Basil Zemplis. TV, radio presenter and commentator, this man does it all, and he shares some really inspiring stories. I hope you enjoy Welcome, Basil, to left of Field. Thank you. I made the call for a big name and I've got the potential future Lord Mayor uh, of Perth.
0: Well, I'm, I'm, well potential is a, is a good choice of words, but I'm flattered with that uh, big name description. Lovely to be here and um, terrific to help out.
1: On the, the Lord Mayor, let's start there. Are you going to run? Uh,
0: look, I honestly, uh, I'm not sure, but I am very interested and I haven't hidden that. Um, it clearly would take a lot of time and there would be time pressures, um, and I've just got to work out if I can manage that commitment with the other commitments that I would have, which hundreds
1: w- of others you yeah, have going on. I
0: guess so. Which would need to stay in place. But what I can tell you, I've definitely got the passion for it. Uh, in my mind, I would love to do it. I've got an appetite for it. I think the city needs something. I think the city probably above all right now needs a champion, someone to get out there and spruit Perth and to say to wave the flag for Perth. And I've got a. Big, loud voice, in you know, in more ways than one. And, you know, I think people do take notice of me both here and around the country when I speak. I, I grab their attention. So if I can use that instead of uh, for bettering my own uh, career for, for the city of Perth, then why not? So, look, I'm, re- I'm genuinely thinking about it. I would love to do it. And if I can find uh, a way to get the right balance, then I will do it.
1: Yeah, great. Well, exciting. Watch this space, yeah, maybe. I, I
0: think so, yeah. I mean, and I need to decide pretty soon. But, um, oh, look, I, I've got a real passion for it, that's for sure.
1: Well, let's start what could have been in a short-lived footy career mm. for you with West Perth. Yes. How, was, how was playing for them?
0: Oh, look, I loved playing footy. It was a, a love of mine. And I, I probably, if everything had been equal, I would have loved to have played some AFL football. Uh, and I was on that path. I was told by a few coaches who had been at that level that I was good enough, but my body wasn't good enough, unfortunately. I had a lot of injuries. But I, I, look, I barracked for West Perth as a kid. I got the opportunity to go to West Perth out of high school. I played league footy at 18. I loved every minute of it. It was a great thrill to wear the red and the blue. And in a football career or in any career, you probably look for signs that things are happening for you. And whilst I had some success and played some good games and and obviously uh, came under some people's notice, I just didn't have much luck with injuries and my body didn't hold together. And, you know, I used to joke about being skinny and and having brittle bones, but it wasn't anything like that. It was just bad luck. At the same time I was pursuing this career, I was studying at uni, and it's like things were falling my way in this career, even at an early age. And and so when I was offered a job almost out of the blue at the age of 22 by seven to become a a cadet sports reporter and join Seven News, even though it was a really tough decision which way to go, because I felt unfulfilled in my footy career, there was no choice to make. It was obvious to me that, wow, you've had all of this bad luck with footy and it looks like you're having this good luck. With yeah. the with the journalism career, I think that's telling you something. The and, universe. Yeah, and so as difficult as it was to say to West Perth and to myself really that that's the end for footy, you have to pursue the other dream. Uh, it was a pretty obvious and easy decision for me to make.
1: So, was there a chance for a contract? Do you regret? At all. Um,
0: I, I trained with uh, West Coast on some what used to be sort of talent talent development days, and that was under Mick Malthouse. Um I'd been spoken about by other AFL clubs, and I know I was on their recruiting lists. And even when Fremantle started, I was told that I was a player that they would like to recruit in their first intake of players. Even though I actually at that stage I'd been out of the game for about six months, so I knew I was around the mark. But I also know what sort of AFL career I would have had. I would have gone onto a list. I might have played a few games. I would have got injured. Because what that kind w-
1: of player were you? Oh,
0: well, I was, a, I was an athletic uh, ruckman come forward. Yeah. Um, I could take a mark. I could kick a goal. And I had a pretty good leap, but I wouldn't have had a brilliant AFL career. And if anything, it would have just held up this career. So when I look back, I don't have any regrets because I know that getting into mainstream media at a young age has been, was a real advantage for me. And it got me into the system and got me going quickly. So no, I don't, I don't look back with any regrets. I loved playing the footy that I did. And uh, I've loved every moment of the career that's followed ever since.
1: So did footy help you get that role, do you reckon, in media? Well, it
0: didn't hurt in that people had heard my name a little bit and they knew that I had an interest in football, but unlike anybody else who comes to these careers because of their AFL career, that certainly wasn't me. I'd studied journalism. I had a Bachelor of Arts from Murdoch and I'd done a fourth year graduate diploma in journalism. I'd done lots of uh, programs like this, for example. Um, And I'd done all of the things that people like us do to try and get going in the media. So my journalistic career was off the back of what I'd studied, not off the back of the football that I'd played, but it certainly and clearly didn't hurt having a football background.
1: And... Obviously, you said everything fell into place for you quite quickly mm. with media. Yeah. You went straight into doing big stories, didn't you, really? Pretty,
0: pretty much. I mean, one of the good fortunes that I had, I got to Channel 7 in February 1994. West Coast was a phenomenon. I mean, it's a phenomenon now, but it was it was on the tip of everybody's tongue at that time. They'd won their first premiership. They were, there was still this mass excitement around everything that they did. And in that season, um, my first season, they went on to win the premiership. But in those years, Channel 7 and 9 and 10, for that matter, were travelling almost every second or third week with the Eagles. And um, so I was I was sort of into the formative stages. You were
1: going of, over to Melbourne straight away?
0: Almost straight away, which I look back and think, how lucky was I? And I spent most of the month of September. It in, doesn't happen these days. It doesn't, no. In my first year, I was in Melbourne. And 10 minutes after the final siren, West Coast have won the premiership. They've won their second flag in 1994. I've been at Channel 7 for seven or eight months, and I was standing out in the middle of the MCG with a Channel 7 pass with a camera crew interviewing the players in their huddle as they were spraying champagne around and thinking, wow, how lucky am I? I really did get to seven at the right time, and and I was in the right position in the pecking order, if you like, Uh, that to most of us would seem like great fun. But if you'd been around for a while, the idea of being the guy out in the middle interviewing the players is probably not your thing. It was definitely my thing then. And uh, I I was off and running and and how lucky I was.
1: That first year, obviously getting even continuing on from there, live TV is tough. Mm. What is any fumbles, any big mistakes you've made along the way that you can um, think about? Well,
0: you know, doing live crosses is something that you can get better at all the time. And I say that to a lot of young reporters. And if you make a mistake in the early stages of your career, you can really kind of, you know, can really knock you around. But I often say to, to, to young people who are trying to master live crosses, the odd stumble or fumble feels a lot worse to you than it does to anybody else watching. I mean, if you have a catastrophic moment where you stop talking, well, that that can be difficult for anybody to come back from. Fortunately, nothing like that happened to me and it doesn't happen to most people. But the odd name mix up or saying something that's a bit wrong, it feels horrendous to you at the time. But when you look back, typically it just looks like the sort of stumble or fumble that we might have in general conversation. More natural. Exactly. And, you know, when you're with a group of friends, one of your friends is Jenny, one of your friends is Diane, and you might go, Diane, when it's actually Jenny. That happens in conversation all the time. You quickly correct it and move on. And I think there's a feeling when you're a young reporter, you cannot make any mistakes at all. But in actual fact, when you look back at them and you go, oh yeah, that's just what happens. And um, so look, I guess I learned that you're going to make mistakes. There's going to be stumbles and fumbles and things that you wish you did better than what you did. But the trick I think is not not to dwell on them. You should dwell on them. You should try and work out why you made that mistake, mm-hmm. to try and work out why you will not make that mistake next time. But don't let it mess with your confidence exactly to the point where I'm never going to do one of those life crosses again I'm so embarrassed I can't believe I did that I, and then crawl into a ball that's the worst thing that you can do so uh, you know you're always learning I'm still learning I've been at it for nearly 30 years now and uh, I, I reckon I learn every day
1: The World Aquatic Championships was a big one Mm. for you, one of your first big events. How was that?
0: 1998, the World Swimming Championships were held here in Perth and seven were broadcasting the Olympics. Dennis Cometti was calling the swimming and it was where Ian Thorpe won his first world championship. Uh, He was at the the age of 15. Uh, I was put on late as the sort of network reporter for that event and it put me around a big... World event, if you like, even though it was in my own backyard, a Challenge Stadium, uh, as it used to be called, the Superdrome, is what it used to be called when we first started. It gave me a taste for what it was like to work on those big events, uh, Olympic-style events or Commonwealth yeah. Games and or, or you know Australian Open-type things. So uh, I loved the thrill of that. I loved the adrenaline of it, and I loved how you know for a time all. All the eyes seemed to be on this one event. And something that probably stood me in good stead down the track, it gave me a taste at a young age of what it was like to work on one of those uh, large-scale world events. And um, the thrill of it was something that I knew I wanted to be a part of more.
1: And you also... That would have been your first scandal that you reported on with the Chinese? Yes,
0: so, yes. I remember the Chinese swimmers arriving um, and they came through the airport and, and this is not sexist or anything like that, but the, the female swimmers looked like male swimmers. The, the, I'm talking in terms of body size. Yeah, I've seen
1: photos of it and their shoulders. Uh,
0: it was quite unremarkable and swimmers are big anyway. Female swimmers can be very it's broad shouldered yeah. but But these female swimmers, a couple of them, look like men. And then a few days later, there was some uh, vials of blood found in their accommodation, which was near Beattie Park, and a couple of the swimmers were sent home in disgrace. It's funny, you know, at the time, that just seemed like a story of drug cheating. Now you wonder what forces were at play on those swimmers to be taking whatever it was that they were taking. And more to the point, I wonder what whatever happened to them. Mm. Almost certainly it wasn't their choice to do it. They were almost certainly made to do it by the the state-run system. Are they still alive? Are they okay? We'll never know. And, and you know, n- only now when you think about oh, I think back over that, you think, gee, that's very unfair, isn't it? What happened to them? And. Uh,
1: a heavy price to pay,
0: It is. You know, that, and that's Danny, in its own way, that gives me an idea, really. It's not a bad story to, to find, particularly that one swimmer who was the poster child, if you like, of that program at the yeah. time. It would where be fascinating to know where she is now.
1: Yeah, how hmm. life changed. Yeah, yeah exactly. And obviously that then led into you doing some Olympics. So you, the Sydney Olympics, obviously. Yeah,
0: Sydney Olympics was a great thrill. It was great just to be there. I had a lower level role, if you like, but nonetheless, I was in the middle of it. I was hosting a highlights program at night that came back to Perth and I did some commentary on things like water polo and Greco-Roman wrestling and some of the lesser sports, but it was just a great thrill to be there. And then not long after the Sydney Olympics. Seven lost the AFL broadcast rights at the end of 2001. So I was kind of on the national scene then and in the seven sport team without being obviously one of the main players. And then when we lost the footy rights, some footy commentators left and Mm. went to Channel 9, principally Dennis Cometti. Others stayed. Bruce stayed. I stayed. I wasn't at that level to be offered a gig at 9 Anyway, but Dennis going in particular really opened things up for me and um, I was I was the weekend sports presenter here in Perth at the time uh, and I was offered Dennis's job when he left and went to nine at the end of the 2001 season. And so then I was the Monday to Friday guy sitting next to Rick and Sue. But then when the next events that Seven still had the rights for came up, for example, the 2002 Winter Olympic Games yeah. and the 2002 Commonwealth Games, I then was able to step up onto that next rung of commentary. You were the
1: next in line.
0: And that was a great thrill because Bruce was our main man and stayed during that five-year period. But it meant you were working pretty closely with Bruce. I was lucky enough to already have worked so closely with Dan. And then I had the better years to come when he came back to seven. But that that put me alongside Bruce. It put me at the Winter Olympics and it gave me an opportunity to call Australia's first ever Winter Olympic gold medal. Yeah, tell me
1: about that. How was... What was that moment like for you?
0: uh, It's still a moment that uh, I almost can't believe. And I know that everybody that sees it, you know, what are the chances there's five people in the race, the four people out in front all fall over and the Australian comes through and wins gold. It's kind of incredible. But part of that story that's remarkable is Bruce had done the short track speed skating at the previous Winter Olympics. And was given the option, as Bruce should be given, to do whatever sports he wanted to do together with the EP. And I think they worked out that the schedule meant that those events weren't so high profile or in Mm -hmm. the best times. And that he was better off doing some of the other events, even if there weren't Australians as okay. as competitive. They were the more traditional winter sports that would be played in prime time in Australia.
1: More more eyes on it.
0: Exactly. So things like the downhill skiing, which is a you know mm. a poster event at the games. So Bruce opted out of the short track speed skating, and I got a phone call saying, "Hey, would you like to call the short track speed skating at the Winter Olympics?" And I said, of course, I'd love to. Didn't know anything about it. Uh, had never been to the Quickly ice or get snow. get every
1: book you've ever seen.
0: That's exactly right. And then, you know, fast track, there I am. And Stephen Bradbury goes on this amazing run. He gets through the heats, gets into the quarterfinals, from the quarters to the semis, had a bit of luck along the way, finds himself in the final. There's only five people in the final. He was easily the slowest. But what an amazing thing just to have an Aussie in the final, and I'm calling it. And then, with all of that, at the last turn, the four people in front, all go over and Bradbury at the tail of the field comes through to win gold. I remember saying it like it was yesterday. and It's like time stood still. And
1: you did say he won gold, which we weren't sure. And is that something that you're really proud Uh, of, that you were able to capture that moment now? I am
0: because when they play it, it's not, we don't know what's happened. It's Stephen Bradbury has won gold. Now, probably it was over anxious from a young commentator (laughs) because at the time, even though he had crossed the line first, it then took half an hour to decide yeah. the gold medal, as it turns out. St- now, look, had he not won gold, it wouldn't matter because they wouldn't be playing it every five On repeat, minutes. yeah. Exactly. So uh, on reflection, I got that right, um, and I'm pleased that I did because we'll only ever have one moment like that. But um, it's funny, um, that was my sliding doors moment, if you like, and I think what I learned from that, and I often tell, say this to people, I didn't really know it at the time, I wasn't. You know, this is not part of my life story, but what Bradbury did was he put himself in the race. He'd had a lot of bad luck in his career. He'd broken his leg, he'd broken his neck, he nearly died. But he kept going because he didn't feel as though he'd given his best at Olympics. And yeah. then, amazingly, through that commitment, at a fourth Olympic Games, he finds himself in the final. And what I learned from that looking back, what what Bradbury did, and it's, I guess, what I've always tried to do, is just put yourself in the race. So don't worry about being the best or number one or the fastest or the first. Just get in the race. Just rock up. Just, just rock up because chances are, A, other people won't turn up or B, they won't keep turning up. And you might not even have to be the best in the field. You might just have to be the one who's the most reliable, the one who's always there. And so I think when I look back at my career, there's a bit of that in me. So it's kind of fitting that I happen to be there on that fateful night as the bloke behind the microphone, because I think I've tried to adopt that approach throughout my career. And I often say, you know, when I come to Whopper or go to Curtin to talk to the uni kids or at Murdoch where I went, I often say, and you probably heard me say it, I I don't think I'm the best. I'm not the funniest. I'm not the smartest. I'm not not the best. Uh, um, But I don't reckon there's too many more reliable than me. And I reckon if I have to be there Monday at eight o'clock, I'll be there Monday ten to eight. And I'll keep being there. And sometimes... You'll put in the work. Sometimes that's all it takes. Be there. Be there. Because what employers I reckon I've found now looking back, what they really want, they'd love to get a Bruce McIvaney or a Dennis Cometi, <laughs> but they only come along once in a lifetime. But they're pretty happy with a solid Basil Zemplis knowing that he's always going to be there, he's going to turn up when he needs to turn up, and he's not going to be high maintenance or cause a huge fuss. Because they've got so many things going on in their in their broadcast world, in their management world, the less things that they need to worry about and the more things that they know in their mind, right, that one's taken care of, I don't need to worry about that, I can get on to the next problem, the more likely they are to keep employing you. And so turning up, being prepared, being ready to go, being reliable can take you a long, long way.
1: And it has taken you, Sue, when Seven did get the footy back, mm. you... Got on to commentating. How
0: yeah. Was that yeah, experience? that was a great thrill. And Do you
1: remember the first game you did?
0: Well, the very first game I did was alongside Dennis. It was an international rules match at the MCG. So it was a pretty obscure first television broadcast of footy, which wasn't even footy. But then my very first AFL game was in 2012. It was in round two. It was Eddie Had Stadium, as it was called then, with the roof open. It was a Saturday afternoon game. It was Essendon versus Port Adelaide. And I was lucky enough to to get onto the seven commentary team in probably what was the last of the era now, I would say, of commentators living in another part of the country and flying around the country to call footy. So I, I feel very lucky to have had eight years on the AFL broadcast team for seven and probably the last eight years where commentators were on the plane. I think from now on, they're pretty much going to be in Melbourne yeah. calling out of a studio And, um, you know, I I thank Dennis for that, not because he got me the opportunity, but he showed television managers around the country, principally in head office of Sydney Mm -hmm. and Melbourne, that it could be that somebody could live in Sydney or live in Perth, rather, or live out of Melbourne and call the footy. And had it not been for Dennis blazing that trail... I don't think people like myself and probably Adam Papalia would have had the opportunities that we've had.
1: You mentioned Bruce a lot and Dennis. How mm. have they shaped your career? What influences have they had well, on you?
0: They've been huge influences, but not not really by sitting down and saying, hey, Dennis, how should I this commentate? This how you should do or, your job. Or, or, or Dennis, what do I do here? Really, it's been by observation. I mean, I've been extremely lucky to one work alongside them and to get lots of opportunities to be exposed to their work. Not only what you see on TV, but also what you don't see on TV. And I've been very lucky for that. So I've seen the way they've conducted themselves. I've seen the way they've prepared themselves. I've seen the way they've worked together. And I often, and I've said this to Bruce, and I say it to Dan often, a lot of the times in in sporting moments, or even just in hosting, even on the radio, I would think, what would Dennis say here? Or, Or how would Bruce handle this moment? Now, I don't do it as well as them. I don't get the words as eloquent as either of those either, I don't think. But they are great role models to have in the back of your mind. And I think In our professional careers, and I often do it with Rick or Sue on the news, if you've got those people that you've observed as a young broadcaster, I think how lucky you are because they become your default settings, if you like. Mm -hmm. And I've said this to the Whopper kids many times. I think one of the reasons why we have such high broadcasting standards and such high presentation standards here in Perth and I've said many times, if you're good in Perth at this career, you'll be good anywhere in Australia. And in fact, you'll be good anywhere in the world. And I think one of the reasons is we've had such great role models. Susanna Carr, one of the very best presenters in the world. Rick Arden, as accomplished as anyone in the country. Dennis Cometti, one of the great sport broadcasters in the world. And they're all on Channel 7 Perth. And we all had the opportunity to grow up and watch them. So as a result... The defaults in our mind or the, uh, the benchmarks in our mind are three of the world's very best. And I think that's one of the reasons why there are so many skilled presenters that come out of Whopper, for example, or come out of WA generally, because in the backs of those students' minds have been, OK, I've seen how Sue's done it over the years, or I've, I've seen how Rick might do it, or I've, I've heard what Dennis would say. And I, I think that's why we're as good as we are in WA.
1: Any special moments that stand out for you calling footy?
0: 2013, I did a qualifying final, Fremantle versus Geelong, down in Geelong, when it seemed that Fremantle had scored the rough end of the pineapple, if you like. Normally Geelong were playing finals at the MCG, but the AFL decided it's time they had a home final at their home ground. And Fremantle went over with virtually no expectation on them to be able to win and they won that game, and there's a moment late in the last quarter where Stephen Hill comes off the boundary line, off the interchange. Aaron Sandlands taps the ball down into his path. He runs in, kicks a goal. And it was the moment that sent them into a home preliminary final and ultimately a grand final. But it was more than that because it was a, a win that was sealed with that that was against all odds. As a West Aussie, I knew the significance of that moment for the audience back at home. As Dennis had known with the Big Eagles moments that he had called before they became a superpower, I knew that was the arrival of Fremantle. And it's the moment that most Frio supporters bring up with me. Some of them love me. Some of them hate me. I'm a member of Frio. I'm a member of West Coast.
1: Yeah, so who do you support? Uh,
0: I'm I'm down. I really am down. The better they go, the better I go. So I like. I want them both to do well. That was a big moment. I remember that. And the fact that Frio people still acknowledge that is nice. And then probably the biggest game of football that I called was a preliminary final, Richmond 2017. They'd been in the wilderness for many, many years. It was a Saturday Twilight game. I was on the Saturday night team. Um, That was a big deal for me to have made it onto the primetime broadcasting team. And there was a moment where Dustin Martin kicked close to the sealer at the punt road end of the ground. There were 92,000 people there. And uh, the commentary was the most basic commentary you could say. It was dusty, 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 but it was just right. For the moment. And it's amazing. One word said three times is probably the little bit of commentary that I'm most proud of. And and Richmond supporters often say to me, and they're a bit love hate with me as well, <laughs> but they often say to me, You nailed that and we're, we're up to you
1: in the street. We're
0: very thankful that you did, yeah. Which is nice. That that's nice. And you know, I called for eight years and a lot of my games were the lower profile games. So I think of Dan and Bruce, what they must get. You know, because they've called so many big moments. Yeah. Uh, what what must life be like for them when they get in a taxi or they're at a restaurant and people recall commentary to them? It must be very special.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned, obviously, Eagles and Dockers here in Perth. We're mm. a, a two-team, one-town. How do you find that?
0: Uh, it's different obviously it's different to Melbourne and so typically you find the Melbourne people a bit more accessible because they've got to compete for the airtime I'm a parochial supporter of WA footy and the WA footy system think uh, what the Eagles and Dockers do by being based in Perth and flying backwards and forwards is nothing short of miraculous and you know what people like Dean Cox and Matthew Pavlich were able to do for so long when you factor in the travel having done it myself For sort of an eight-year period and the last two years of it with weekend sunrise, every weekend to Sydney, it's a big, big ask. And nobody on the East Coast, no one, I know in my area and I know in their area, no one gives them credit for that travel factor. And unless you're doing it yourself, you just don't know the toll that it takes on the individual and on the individual's family. It's a big, big ask to be able to do it from over here.
1: Is it tough in the media? reporting on it, do you feel like there's a bit of a hub and the passion's strong? I know you've had a few even Mm. testing moments with Simpson when you're Mm. trying to get the real story.
0: No, that part's fine. And that, you know, I think Seven certainly respect, certainly 6PR as well. Everyone that I work for respects the Eagles and the Doggers. And I know that even though it's begrudging at times and it gets testy and it's a bit, it can be a bit of argy bargy, I know that they know how important the media is to them as well. So those moments are fine. In fact, those moments should happen because that's a professional relationship between yeah. two adult parties, if you like. I'm asking the questions. They're not always going to like them. Plenty of times when I pat them on the back and pump their tyres up, and they are going to like it. So there's nothing personal in any of that. And I don't sort Sort of walk away from a moment like that and think, oh bloody Adam Simpson! Mm-hmm. No, he's entitled to answer questions the way he feels they should be answered, as I am entitled to ask them the way I feel that they should be asked. And in that instance, we differed on whether we thought it was legitimate to be <laughs> putting those questions. But that was uh, a, that's Brayshaw, Brayshaw and, sorry, and, and um, Andrew Gaff. Gaff. That's yes. right. Yes. Yeah. And, and was is there a culture problem at West Coast?
1: Oh, big question. Yeah, well, it
0: was as it turns out. They won the flag that oh, yeah. year.
1: You got to ask hard questions, get exactly. the hard answers. Exactly. I want to ask you, what do you love about footy? Mm. It's, t- it's a big part of your life. Yeah,
0: yeah it is. Um, look, I just enjoy the concerts. Probably footy for me the most fun was going along to Leaderville Oval, barracking for West Perth as a kid. Probably that was even more fun than being a West Perth League footballer, although that was great fun as well. And then going to the footy as a commentator is a huge buzz, but that's work. And so it's not as much fun, although the work is fun, but you've got to do homework and you're not rocking up with your footy budget and a voice to cheer for your favourite team. You're there to work and there's an expectation on you and there's a level of pressure on you. So it's multifaceted. But what I do know from coming through football the way I did is starting out as a mad supporter myself. I know how much football means to the people that are sitting in the crowd or watching TV. And that's probably what I love about it the most. Even though I'm no longer one of those people, football is different to me now because it's become a big part of my professional life. And so there's a professionalism that comes with it. But I love the joy that it brings, the people that are watching that broadcast or are sitting there in the crowd.
1: You have a lot of different strings to your bow, Mm. 6PR, one of them. How do you enjoy radio?
0: Radio's great fun. It's immediate. It's fast. You can really zing it around if you like. With TV, you're a a cog in a big wheel that takes a while to turn. But I love radio. I love the immediacy of it, and I love the camaraderie of it. Milsey and I get on brilliantly. It's great fun coming into work every morning. It's an environment like not many other in broadcast. I- I'd say, actually, it's probably the best environment in broadcast. As great as TV is, and don't get me wrong, I-, I love television. But the radio environment on a show with a partner that you get on with have got a chemistry with, I think is hard to beat as the best spot to find yourself in.
1: And who is Basil Zemplis without Spore and without all of this?
0: Well, now I'm a family man and I love being a dad and I love being a husband and Amy and I are lucky enough to have moved into a a family home after years of living in an apartment with the kids and life is pretty good I mean COVID was terrible on lots of levels for a lot of people and there's still a lot of pain in our community but for us we were very lucky it meant a lot more time at home. It meant a lot of weekends in Perth that otherwise I wouldn't have had. And it was a really great opportunity to reconnect. So really, I often say to people, people go, how do you do it all? You know, There's really only two things I do. I either work or I'm with my family. There is no in between. I don't go and play golf. I don't go to the pub with my mates. I don't go out for dinner with friends. It's family or it's work. And so every spare second is poured into my family. And I love that. I'm lucky enough to have kids at an age now. We're on that great journey of discovery. There's a new discovery every day, and it's a wonderful thing to be a part of. So I consider myself very, very fortunate. I couldn't really ask for too much more. I've loved every moment of it. I hope there's still a lot more to come. I often say to the young people, don't think that you've peaked or that the best thing that's going to happen to you has happened. And even if it hasn't happened at 20 or 30 or 40, it might be coming at 50. It might be coming at 60. And if you look recently at Dennis Cometti and the adulation and commendation that he's received... He's in his 70s now and he's probably never been as warmly applauded as he has been now. So you don't know when those moments are going to come. And if they haven't come, don't give up on them coming. But uh, if I don't do another thing in my career and I retired tomorrow, uh, I would retire a very happy man.
1: What is your future? Footy will you be doing? Mm. Will you be doing the Olympics? Uh,
0: I think there'll be less footy now because I think most of the footy will be called out of Melbourne. The Olympics are are still on the table. Are you looking forward to? Yeah, it'll be different and and it may well be calling the Olympics off a offered offer of TV in Melbourne now rather than going to... Is that
1: what you've spoken to?
0: It's not confirmed one way or the other, but that's a, a, po- a strong possibility. But I'll certainly be doing radio in Perth. I'll certainly be on the news in Perth. And who knows? I might even be the Lord Mayor of Perth.
1: Well, we'll look out for that.
0: I'll keep you posted, don't keep worry. i
1: very busy. It's so hard to keep up with you, but thank you so much for putting this time aside.
0: Uh, you're welcome, Danny. Really
1: great chat, some great stories there, and I bet you'll have plenty more to share in the future.
0: Yeah, wait for the next 30 years.
1: I know, another 30 years of the microphone, who knows what you'll call.
0: Good on you, Danny, thanks a lot.
1: Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to episode six of Left of Field. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Basil. I certainly did. Please subscribe and go back and give some of my other episodes a listen. I promise you they are just as entertaining. Tune in next week when I chat to another sporting superstar.